Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Glad you're here. It's good to see you. And um, today I'm excited because we get to start a new series on the book of Ruth. And if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Ruth in your Bible. If you're not quite sure where it is, give you, some, uh, give you a little bit of a, uh, some of the books around it, surrounding it, so you can kind of find your way there. If you don't have your Bible with you, don't worry. Hopefully you receive that handout on your way in so you can follow along with us in this study. Now, I'm excited about this study because Ruth really is just such a, a, just a, it's gold. It is such a great work of ancient literature, but it's, it's a great work of ancient literature that has such impact for us presently in our lives. And so I'm excited to look at it with you as we enter into and begin this new year together. Um, the book of Ruth is very, very um, it's beautiful, it's elegant. My hope is that we'd be able to, I'd be able to convey, help convey some of the beauty of this book. It's a book where you see the beauty of redemption, you see relationships, you see love, you see God's faithfulness, and it's beautiful. All the things that we want as we enter into the new year. But in order to understand the book of Ruth, you also need to understand that it's written in the backdrop of darkness, of dark days, um, which seems like a bummer way to start out the new year. Um, but the reality is true for both, for, in both ways for us as we enter into the new year, that each of us, we want redemption. We want a second chance. We want love. We want relationships. We want to experience God's faithfulness going into the year ahead. And yet at the same time, we also have to be honest and recognize, yes, we have our own dark days, dark days that we've been living through, dark days that we're presently experiencing, and dark days that we are heading into. So that is part of the, the, the context of this book and why it's so very helpful for us as we head into this new year together. The question you have is, well, what kind of dark days are, do we experience? And so what I want to do is just point out a couple of the dark days um, that, you, that you'll see um, in the book of Ruth. But as you look at them, you'll also be able to say, oh, yeah, that's true for me, too. Let's take a look at them together. There's three kinds of dark days that, are, that make up the context of this book, but also for our experience as well. First of all, there's the days that others have made. Some of us experience dark days because of decisions that other people make that impact us. Have you ever felt those days? Decisions that are made at work or in your home or in your relationships that impact you or in the, the world. In fact, the context, the background for this book is, the, is it's written in the time period of the judges. So if you're, if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, let me just give you the thesis statement, the context for it. The thesis for the book of Judges is this. In Judges 21, it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, can you imagine living in a time period when everyone does what's right in, from their own perspective? Can you imagine that? A time where people just have, you know, the authority. It's like, hey, we'll just, we, no, God, we don't need God's authority. We'll just do what we want to do. And we'll just go the way we want to go. Can you imagine living in a context like that? And it, if you do, can't imagine it, it has an impact on our lives. So it's the decisions that people make. In fact, in this time period, the period of the judges, um, it was marked by um, international conflict. It had riots. 
national unrest, economic uncertainty, there was corrupt, tr- corrupt leadership, there was moral decay. Hard to imagine any of those things that could be, you know, part of a context in which we're li- you're living, but this was the context that, they're do- that they lived in. And so certainly there's a part of living in a broken world with broken people that we experience dark days because of decisions people make. So that's the first one, days that others have made. A second kind of dark day is this, days that you deserve. Days that you deserve. Now, this one we don't like to think about or like to talk about, but the reality is if we're honest with ourselves that there are certain dark days that we experience because of our own dumb decisions, because of decisions that we make, because of actions that we take, we experience certain consequences, that we enter into certain dark days. And oftentimes, it's really subtle or you know, maybe even unintentional in some ways, where it's like we spend the money that we don't have. And then we wonder, why are we facing all these challenges right now? Or we enter into the relationship that we should have avoided, and now we're dealing with the challenges of that. Or we've said the words that we wish we could take back. Wouldn't it be great if we could just take back certain words and certain things and just shove them back in our face? We can't. And yet this is the reality that we face, that we live, and so we, de- we deal with some of the dark days of our own actions, our own words, our own uh, doing. It can be things that we start that end up taking control of our lives and becomes an addiction. There's dark days that we experience and all of, us have, all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, at some point would say, yeah, this mess is part of my own doing and that's part of the dark days that you'll discover in this book but also we, see, we can spot in our own lives as well. The third one is this, days that you create. Days that you create. And this is not so much sourced in our actions but our attitudes because so much of life is not what happens to us, but what we say about what happens to us. It's, it's the response that we bring to circumstances. It's the attitude that we have in the circumstances that we're facing. And so much of this is rooted, deeply rooted in our families that we grew up in or the failures of our life. And so it can, and yet can be very corruptive and corrosive to our life and it can be very difficult to shake. And so there's, there's three different areas, these different kinds of dark days that you'll see in this book as part of the backdrop, the context that we recognize in our life too. The question is, what do we do with these dark days? How do we respond to the pressure that comes when we experience pain of the darkness? We've experienced some of these consequences, these challenges of living in a world living with, as, as broken people in, in this environment. How do we deal with that pressure? So let me give you three different common ways of dealing with the pressure. The first one is this. The first response is to go away. When the pressure comes, the challenges hit, we want to escape. We just want to run and we want to run away. And sometimes that means running away from God or from relationships or from responsibilities. We want to run. Second one is this. We give in. That is when the pressure comes, the pressure hits our lives, we say, ah, it's just too much. And so I'll just give in to the culture. I'll give in to my surrounding environment. I'll just, I won't fight it anymore. I'll just go along with it. I give in. The third one is this, that we give up. That at some point, going away, giving in, we just get so tired, we give up. We find ourselves in a point where we give up on God, on ourselves, on others. And it can be a really hard place to be. When pressure comes, the danger is what happens when um, that pressure comes, are we going to get to a point of, of folding under that pressure? 
We respond in different ways, but the challenge is how will we respond when it comes? And so I was uh, talking to um, an engineer this last, this last hour about um, this concept of a yield point. And I'm not an engineer. This is stuff I read about or talk to people about. And I was talking to an engineer about this concept of a yield point. So some of you engineers, this will make sense to you. I'm just trying to understand it myself. But this, this, this concept that if you have a material that what you can do with the material, you put pressure on the material and it can bend, it can move. But if you go beyond the yield point, then it begins to change the, the, uh, you know, the material to a point where it, it won't go back to its original place. So there's a point of pressure you can put on it. And if you let go, it'll go back to its original form. But if you go past the yield point, it, it's... Um, it will stay there. It won't go back to its original place. Now, you can go past the yield point to a failure point, and then it's just obliteration, right? But there's that yield point. And the question is, will we go to, if we go beyond that yield point, we will be permanently changed. And for many of us, we feel and have faced certain pressure that we're like, I have been permanently changed. I, have been, I, I've, I feel like there's just this, this point of no return for me. But here's why the book of Ruth is so beautiful. Because, yes, it's written in the backdrop of dark days, of real pressure. But even if we find ourselves in a place, a position where we feel like we've gone past the point of no return, where we we've, we've, we've feel like we've lost hope in ourselves and God in the world in which we live, God is still faithful. That there is still mercy in the shadows. God is still present in our dark days when the pressure comes, when the pain hits. That God does not give up. In fact, God goes after those who seek him. But here's the great thing. God goes after those who don't seek him too. And isn't that good news? We have a great God who is faithful. And the book of Ruth reminds us of that. The book of Ruth reminds us that God is still faithful even when we're faithless, even when we go and we, we cave to the pressure or we're experiencing the darkness, God still meets us there. And the book of Ruth reminds us of God's redemption, his love, and his faithfulness. All things that I want for me and I want for you and I want for our church as we head into this new year. So as we go into this study together, my prayer is that we experience and we recognize God's mercy his light in the midst of our darkness and that we cling to him so that we can, by his grace, experience his power, his redemption, his love, his faithfulness in our life as we enter into this new year together. So let's take a moment. And what I want to do is I want to read this passage for you and, and with you. And so um, if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read this passage together. Um, brace yourself, it's long, but it's so good. I want you to capture and get all the richness of this uh, first chapter here together. In Ruth chapter one, it says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were sickly and wasting away. I'm not making that up. We'll talk about it in a little bit. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. 
They, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living out and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters, two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people, her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Then they, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. What I'd like to do is look at this passage verse by verse so that we can understand, um, understand the message even clearer. So the beginning of verse 1, it says this, In the days when the judges ruled. So I'll stop there and just remind you, I already mentioned this, the time of the judges, the period of the judges, were the dark ages of Israel. So they were difficult and dark times. And the, during this time, there was a famine in the land. A famine was frequently um, part of what God would use to bring his, his un, you know, people who were unfaithful back to him. The, the God's, God's people, the Israelites, when they were unfaithful, frequently he'd use a, a famine to bring them back to him so they'd respond to him and trust him. And this, this, this is what's um, happening at this time. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So uh, let, me, let me go back just for a moment and just say this. They're, um, they're from Bethlehem. And here's an interesting thing. Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. And yet there's a famine. So this, it's, there's irony all throughout this book in contrast. It's beautiful. But the point is this, that there's, that there's no bread in the house of bread. 
And so when this famine hits, they leave and they go to Moab. This is, the, this is where I, I want to show you a map of where Moab is. It's to the east of the Dead Sea. From Bethlehem, you can see where they went to get to Moab. Um, it is about a seven to 10 days walk, a journey, about a week or more to get to Moab from Bethlehem. Um, but here's the interesting thing about this decision. When the famine hits, when the pressure comes, in the midst of kind of the, the challenge of life, in the midst of the pressure, what they do, what they decide, this family, they decide to go to Moab, which is part of going away. Do you remember the three different responses? Going away, giving in, you know, giving up. Um, they're going away. And what are they going away from? Well, they're going away from Bethlehem, which is in the promised land. This is the land that God had promised to his people. This was part of his plan, that they would be there, that he would care for them, that they would call out to him, that he would respond and take care of them. So they are leaving the promised land. And so that's shocking. But what's even more shocking is where they go to. So they're leaving the promised land, but then they go to Moab, which would have been absolutely a stunning, stunning decision. Because Moab was not only not the promised land, but the Moabite people were people that God had made very clear, had been very adamant that they were not to do anything with the Moabite people. The Moabite people were um, continually, viciously, bitterly opposed to the Israelites. And in, in, a, in a certain sense, they were cursed by God because of their, their, their stubbornness and their position against the um, the, the Israelites, they were perpetual enemies of the Israelites. So God said, don't do anything with the Moabite people. Don't live among them. Don't, don't intermarry with them. And so it was very clear what they were, what his position on that. And yet they go to Moab. Now going back to that verse, first verse, look what it says. It says this, they went to live for a, how long? For a while in the country of Moab. This is interesting to me. It says that they went away they went for a while. And I think that we can find ourselves in this spot too. We just say, I'm going to deviate from God's plan just for a little while. Uh, yes, God, this is your place that you've provided for us. This is the promised land. This is the, the people that you've placed among us so that we can trust you and, and, and worship you together. But I'm just going to deviate from your plan for a little while. And so they make a decision and the decision is to leave the promised land, to go to Moab, which would be absolutely stunning. So they go for a while. Then verse two, we can learn more about this family just simply by learning and looking at their names more closely. So it says this, the man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech means God is king, which is kind of a contradictory statement because God is king unless life becomes inconvenient then convenience is king. And that's kind of the story of this man's life. Life gets hard. God, you're no longer king. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to find, find comfort in, in my, own, my own plan. So that's Elimelech. Then his wife's name is Naomi. Naomi is um, very likely, as well as her sons, those are all nicknames. These are likely not their formal names. Um, Naomi is not normally a formal name, but it's a nickname. It it's means pleasant 
Sometimes it means beautiful. Um, and the idea is this, you know, if you know somebody because of their disposition or their attitude, that you might call them sunny or sunshine. That's kind of the concept. Hey, this is pleasant. This is a person who, by her disposition or who she is, that's what she's, her nickname is. And then it says the names of her two sons were Malon and Kilion. Malon means sickly, really truly means sickly. So Probably not the name that he was given at birth, okay? So that just kind of helps you understand this is a nickname, all right? And then, then Kilion, another good Klingon name, um, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it, probably, it means wasting away. In fact, more literally, it means pneumonia. So again, what did you name your little boy? Pneumonia. You know what I mean? So it's not probably his formal name, but these are nicknames that are given to the boys to help us understand their condition and, the, and kind of where they're at. And it says that they're Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and they lived there. Now, when pressure came, the famine, they chose to go away. And here's what ha- often happens when hard times come, when painful things happen, we can if we choose to go away from God's plan, make bad decisions. Dark days can tempt us, lead us to make bad decisions. And bad decisions can lead to darker days. And that's what we see happen in this story. In verse 3, it says this, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So this is a real tragedy. They left um, Bethlehem, so that they could, you know, escape death from the famine. But what do they get when they leave? They get death. And it's tragic. The question is, wow, this is terrible, Naomi. What are you going to do now you're left with your two sons in a foreign land? Well, she could go back to Bethlehem. She could go back home to the promised land with God's people and trust God there. That would be something she could do in this tragic moment where she could be comforted and cared for and she could have additional confidence because God has said he has a special heart for the widow. Oh, so that would be, that would be great. What does she choose to do? Verse four says this, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, let's go to verse five, both Malon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So rather than go back to Bethlehem, go back home to the promised land with God's people and to trust God there, she, cho- she chooses to stay in Moab and allow her sons to marry Moabite wives. And this was her decision. The husband is no longer there and Limelech is dead, so she would be the one that would grant permission for her sons to marry the Moabite women. Now, could they have married Israelites? Yes. A week's journey, they could have been back in Bethlehem. They could have found, you know, Israelite um, uh, wives for her, for her sons. But she doesn't. She stays there. She makes the decision. She has them married, the Moabite wives. And again, I've already stated that God was very clear that they were not to be um, associated with the Moabites. And part of that, again, is because of their worship. And among many other things, the Moabites worshiped a, a God by the name of Chemosh. And as a part of showing your devotion to Chemosh in terms of worship, the Moabites would take 
um, their firstborn, typically, uh, oftentimes a son, and, and they would take their firstborn sons and they would sacrifice their sons in front of the idol of Chemosh. That was a part of their worship. And it was detestable to God. And so he's like, I don't want you to do any, have anything to do with them or to their, or their form of worship or their culture. And yet, what does Ruth do? So, sorry, Naomi do. She allows her boys to marry Moabite wives, which would have been absolutely forbidden. And then what happens is her boys die. So you're leaving one famine and you get three funerals. This is tragedy. This is difficult. And at some point, you have to recognize that this isn't stuff that's, that's um, you'd say, that being done in some ways. This is also part of her decision-making, the decision-making of this family to go to Moab to, to, to marry um, these, these women and to get, find themselves in this spot. So it is tragic. They find themselves in this place, and it's, and it's a difficulty. There is great pain as a result of the decisions and the darkness in which they're experiencing. But then there is hope. She hears about what God is doing back in, um, in Bethlehem. It says this in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So Naomi hears that God is caring for and providing for his people. Now, she could have experienced that God was providing for his people by staying in Bethlehem, but she didn't. She made the decision, they made the decision to leave. But at this point, there's a reset. There's a moment, there's a moment for her to return, to go back home where she should have been in the first place. And so she does that. She says she prepares with the daughters-in-law to go back to Bethlehem. In verse seven, it says this, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So this is a great start. She packs her stuff. She gets her two daughters-in-law because her sons have passed away. She's now responsible for her daughters-in-law. They're her responsibility. And so she gathers them and gathers their stuff, and they go, they're off to a great start. They set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. But with all great starts... The question is, do you finish? Do you continue? And this is what, look what happens in verse eight. It says this, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to, to your dead husbands and to me. Wait a minute, Naomi. You had gathered your daughters-in-law and you were taking them with you because they're under your care back home to Bethlehem. But somewhere on that road, she goes from going away to giving in to now giving up. The pressure is too great. It's too much. She's overwhelmed by her grief, by loss, by pain. And she's got the responsibility of these daughters-in-law. So what does she do? She repeats the pattern and she tells them, go away. She gives up. And she starts all over again. Go away. And she puts some blessings to it, which sounds nice, but essentially she's saying, I can't take it. I'm giving up on God, on you, on me, everything. Go back home. That's what she's saying. And as she says in verse 9, May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. 
So that's what she's saying. Go back. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead and go to the next verse. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. So they don't want to leave her. They want to stay with her. They want to stay under her care. They want to stay connected to her. But listen to her reasoning. In the next verse, it's um, flawless reasoning. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? So again, return home, my daughters. I too, I am, yeah, sorry. Return home, my daughters. Why would anyone come with me? Am I going to have any more sons that could become your husbands? Next verse. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. So she's saying, listen, return home. Go back and you'll find other husbands. I'm too old. I'm not going to have more sons. Would you wait for me? Of course, great question. Would you wait for me to have more sons and for them to grow up and for you to marry them? And it's a great question. And she gives a flawless response. That is if her only hope and their only hope was in Naomi. But their only hope isn't Naomi. God is their hope. God's Naomi's hope. God's their hope. If it's all about Naomi, then yes, great question. It doesn't, it, you know, go, home, go back. Um, I won't have sons in time. So this is the next verse, I think, is the next verse where it so would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand is turned against me again. She has lost hope in God. And she's, in, in that sense, saying, hey, you need to go away too. Now, notice this, this statement here she makes, because God's hand has turned against me. There's no statement here, of course, that, hey, we left God's promised land and God's people. We stayed in among the Moabites. We allowed our sons to marry Moabite women. And we've chosen this path. None of that. It's whose hand is against them or her. Oh, it's God's hand is against me. So now it's, it's God's fault. Now, here's the deal. God's given up on me is basically what she's saying. Why does she say that? It's because she has given up on God. She's at a spot. She's saying, God's hand is against me. I've given up on God. I went away. I gave in. I, I've given up. And so therefore, God must have given up on me. And that's an easy place for any of us to get into that spot. And again, these are the dark days that we create. It's the attitude that we approach things with. It's what we say about the things and the circumstances that are happening to us. And because she's given up on God, she assumes that God has given up on her. But it's not true. Let's keep reading. It says this in verse 14. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Um, this is the last that we, we hear of Orpah. Then verse 15 it says this, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Now again, we, Orpah has gone and Ruth is still holding on. And now Naomi is saying to Ruth, go back like your, sis, your sister-in-law, go back with her. But what is she telling her to go back to? She's telling her to go back to her people and her gods. She's essentially saying, go back to living in idolatry. Go back to living with false gods. So because she has gone away, given in, given up, she's got to a point where she's also not, she's selling her to do the same thing. And she's, she's no longer saying, hey, 
God's chin has turned his back on me. You might as well go and go back to your, your false gods. This is what's happening here now in verse 16. Look at Ruth's response. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Verse 17, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Isn't this an incredible statement? It's beautiful. And in it, it's a spiritual vow. She's talking about God. She's talking about God being a part of it. May the Lord deal with me. And he says, may your God be my God. And in some ways, this beautiful vow, it's so beautiful that many of you have used it in your weddings as a wedding vow. You didn't know that it was a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law vow. That's what's going on here. But it's beautiful and it's so powerful, this, this relational commitment, this spiritual commitment that she's making. And it's, it's fascinating because what you see here is this great contrast, this great contrast with Naomi, who when the pressure comes, says, I'm going away, I'm giving in, I'm giving up. But here's Ruth, when the pressure comes, she chooses to remain. And trust me, she's got dark days and pressure, real pressure ahead of her. Because by her choosing to remain with Naomi, she's going now to a foreign land. She's giving up her ancestral gods. She's giving up her family, all of that's familiar to her. She's going to a strange place where they do not like Moabite people. And she's going there, trusting in, an, in the one true God and sticking with her mother-in-law. That is impressive. She chooses to remain and not run. And you see, you see um, this, this beautiful statement that she makes to Naomi. Now, the question is, with this beautiful statement of trust and, and saying, you may not be sticking with God, I'm sticking with God and I'm sticking with you, does it change Naomi? That's the question. When she sees this displayed, what happens? What's Naomi's response? Then in verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So she stopped urging her, but the question is, is she changed? Has she changed her perspective? Verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, can this be Naomi? So this is 10 plus years. She comes back to Bethlehem. The women begin to recognize and say, oh, could this be Naomi? That's their, their question. Her response in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. So she says, don't longer call me pleasant, call me bitter, because God has, 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 has made my life very bitter. So this is her perspective still. She's, she's seeing her life through the lens of being a victim and, and, and it's tainting and it's, and it's her whole perspective. Verse 21, look at it, what, what the further distortion of, of her mind and her perspective. It says this, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me because she's taken on this victim mentality in the midst of the pain and pressure, which is all very real, she begins to distort and rearrange certain things as she looks back at her life. In verse 21, she says, I went away full. Did she go away full? No. She went away hungry and empty. 
That's how she went away. The question is, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, is she coming back empty with nothing? No, who's she coming back with? With Ruth. Wait, Ruth's like, hey, I'm here. Do you not see me? You know what I mean? It's like, I'm, I'm actually right, right next to you. I'm empty. I have nothing. Who, who am I? What am I? Ruth is standing right next to her, clinging to her, saying, your God, my God, your people, my people, I'm leaving everything to be with you. In fact, she's later praised. Ruth is later praised for being greater than seven sons. She's amazing. This is God's incredible resource that's been given to Naomi in the time of great pain in her life, but she can't see it. She's empty. I, I went away full. No, you weren't full. You were starving. But now I'm coming back because God has brought misfortune upon me. Because she's given up on God, she assumes God has given up on her. And the question is, is she passed that, that yield point? As she got to a point where, you know, she's permanently lost form. Is she, is she beyond the point of coming back? That's the question. Look at what it says in verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. See, Naomi... She, in the midst of the pressure, went away, she gave in, she gave up, and she's like, God's given up on me. But this last verse tells us a different story. That God had given her Ruth, and she's coming back to Bethlehem, the place that she started, she comes all the way back around to Bethlehem again at the time of the barley harvest. Now, I'd love to tell you what happens next. But you'll have to come back next week to hear the rest of the story. Because it's amazing. God's mercy in the shadows. In the midst of dark days. In the midst of bad decisions that lead to even darker days. God calls us to return back to him. That God has not given up on us. God's love is still for us. That we are not past the point of redemption because we have that great of a God. That he's still working even when we can't see it. His mercy is in the shadows. His light is still there even in our darkest days. And we can trust him. How do I know that we can trust him? Because it's not just here in this passage, but we see it so vividly portrayed through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We can trust God because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. See, we give up, we go away, we give in, we give up. Jesus didn't do any of those things. Jesus didn't go away when he saw the brokenness of the world, our rebellion. In fact, Jesus said, I'm going in. He's not going away. He came in. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that he entered into humanity. He didn't go away. He came to be with us. We give in when the pressure comes. Jesus didn't give in. He withstood temptation. He lived the sinless life, and he died on the cross to pay for the penalty of all of our giving ins, all of our sinful decisions, all of our, our poor and foolish um, choices. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. 
We give in. He didn't give in. And it's because of his sacrifice that we can find forgiveness. Did Jesus give up? No. He didn't give up on you and on me. In fact, in Romans 5, it says this, that, while, that God loved us so much that while we were still sinners, that is, while we were still in darkness, in our darkest days, he sent his son. He died on the cross for our sins. This is the good news. This is why he's so trustworthy. That in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the pressure, in the midst of the pain, God brings us back. He calls us back to return to him, no matter how far we've gone. No matter what we've experienced, no matter how difficult life is, he calls us back to himself. And he wants to show us his mercy, his love, his redemption, and his faithfulness. Let's take a moment and let's thank him for that and ask him to lead us into this new year with all of these things. God, we thank you so much again for your mercy, for your grace, that you didn't give up on Naomi when she'd given up on you, that you don't give up on us when we're rebellious and we make poor decisions or we find ourselves just giving in, giving up in different ways, that you didn't give up on us that you loved us so much you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could find forgiveness, we can find healing, we can find hope. And as we enter into this new year together, God, we pray that you would remind us and allow us to recognize your mercy, your grace, your redemptive power in our life today and the next day. And as we continue to look to you as we walk into the future together, God, we thank you for this. I also just pray for those here who feel like they've been running and today you're calling them back to you. For those here who have given in, who've given up, I pray, Lord, that they hear your call, the reminder that you're a God who chases after us that you offer forgiveness and hope and healing even when we feel like we're beyond, we're beyond it. I pray for those, Lord, that they would put their faith in you, trust you. In fact, if you're here now and you are just ready to say, God, I want to come to you, maybe for the first time or maybe you're returning because you've wandered off, this is your moment to say, God, I want to put my faith in you trust you and not myself. Receive your forgiveness and follow you as the leader of my life. You pray that prayer, he'll listen, he'll respond. And I trust me, your year will be different. God, we thank you again for hearing our prayers, for being a God of grace and mercy and love. We love you. We ask that you would allow us to continue to see you in this year ahead. In your name, amen.